So in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they both tell the stories of two prominent people who were used by God to accomplish great things in the world. And they lived at a time when God's people had been sent into exile, and although a few had returned earlier, both Ezra and Nehemiah led more people back from the exile in Babylon, back to Jerusalem, back to the land of Israel, um, to, uh, and, and those who um, were there in the promised land, the reason they needed these guys to come back was because they were still in a very precarious place those who had returned, both politically, economically, and religiously, they were in a precarious place. And uh, the people of God faced many challenges. And in many ways, things were not going very well for them. So uh, Hanani, the brother of Nehemiah, after he had visited Jerusalem, he came back to Babylon and talked to his brother Nehemiah. And here's what he said in Nehemiah chapter one, he says, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So that, of course, wasn't the only problem that the people were facing, but it was one of the big challenges. And there was a need for God to come to the aid of his people. And we see in these books that the primary way that God worked in this situation, which is the way he works normally, was by raising up leaders from among his people to do his will through these leaders to help his people to address the challenges that they faced. So Ezra helped address the problem that the people did not know God's written revelation in the Bible. And so he taught them, and he organized a team of teachers to help the people to know God better and to know his word better and how to relate to God and how to worship him. And Nehemiah led the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which gave the city a renewed sense of pride and security. And both of them worked on bringing the commands of God to bear on the sins of God's people and, uh, and leading them through a time of repentance. So God accomplished great things through Ezra and Nehemiah. And the needs of the people were met, and God's kingdom and plan for the world moved forward. So, what about today? Is there a need today for God to come to the aid of his people? Is the world in need of God to work through his people to move his kingdom forward? Well, obviously, uh, some of our specific challenges are quite a bit different than what the Jewish people of 400 B.C. faced but many of them are, are, are still the same, and, and, the, and the fact remains that we need God. We need him to use his people to do great things in the world and to change the world. And maybe, 
He wants to use you. Maybe he wants to use you. Maybe God wants to use you. Maybe he wants to use you. So are you starting to think that God might want to use you? Or should I say that a couple more times? Um, Okay. Let's get back to these two guys, Ezra and Nehemiah. And let's see what we can learn about what kind of people God chooses to use. And whether or not you might be the kind of person that God uses. So what were the backgrounds of Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, they're kind of uh, broader background. They both were uh, Jewish uh, guys, and, uh, and they were descended from a group of people who had been chosen by God and given special privileges as the people of God, and then those people had failed to live up to their calling. And as Nehemiah puts it in his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, he says, uh, Nehemiah 1, starting with verse uh, 6, he says, uh, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. So the spiritual heritage of these guys is mixed at best, right? They did not grow up in families with long traditions of faithfulness to God. So what about you? Is your family heritage one of faithful service to God? Or is it a spiritually mixed background? See, God can use you either way. If you yourself and your father's family are guilty of sin and have acted very wickedly toward God, well, that's a terrible thing. But it does not mean that God does not want to use you to accomplish his will in this world. Next, let's look a little bit at where these guys as individuals, where they were when we first meet them in the story. What was their personal background? Who were Ezra and Nehemiah? So first we see uh, Ezra, in, uh, he comes up in... Ezra chapter 7 is when Ezra first appears in the book. And here's what it says about him in uh, chapter 6. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And a few verses later, it says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So that's a pretty impressive uh, 
credential there. He's well-versed in the law of Moses. And the hand of the Lord his God is on him. And he had devoted himself to the study and teaching of the Bible and to doing what it taught. And he was a priest by profession, full-time preacher, teacher of the Bible. So he was apparently a pretty prominent priest, too, because uh, here among the Jewish exiles in Babylon, he had had audience with the king uh, and had had discussions with him about theology and things. So, um, so he's a pretty, pretty prominent guy. Now let's look at the other guy that God uh, uses in these stories, who is Nehemiah. Now, his background is quite a bit different, and we see it uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, where he states very simply what his uh, background was. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, uh, we don't have 100% clarity on exactly what the role of the cupbearer was in ancient Persian Empire. Uh, But from historical sources and from the book of Nehemiah itself, we can tell that he was a pretty important household servant. Um, He would bring the wine to the king, both as a kind of uh, sommelier, the the wine expert, and also as kind of a security expert who would make sure that the wine and the food and everything that came to the king was all safe. Um. And he also appears to have been a pretty high-ranking servant who would have been a kind of manager for the other servants in the king's household. So uh, we can tell that partly because when he gets sent to to Jerusalem later, the king uh, sends him to be the governor of the whole province. He is the king's representative there and the ruler over the entire province of Judea. So Nehemiah was a high-ranking household servant of the king and later became a government official. Now that's quite a different background from Ezra, right? One is a priest, one is a politician. And no doubt their educations and their life experiences were quite a bit different. One had a career in the religious world. One had a career in the secular world. One had devoted himself to studying and teaching the Bible. One had devoted himself to learning about food and wine and security and managing staff. So which one of those guys was chosen by God to advance his will and his kingdom in the world? Well, we would often think, well, of course the guy that God's going to use is going to be the preacher, right? Um, that's the guy who went to seminary. <laughs> that, that he's the one that God is going to use his do, to do his will, not the guy who went to business school. But these guys are yet another biblical illustration of the fact that God uses people from a great variety of backgrounds and skill sets. And maybe... He wants to use you. Maybe he wants to use you. 
So that's a bit of the background of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, both of them were living in Babylon, part of the, the exiled people of God, and ended up leading groups of Jews back to Jerusalem. It was a dangerous journey to travel all that way in those days. There was bandits along the way and stuff, especially if you were part of a caravan that was carrying treasure, which both of them were when they were traveling uh, this group. And uh, <clears throat> so how did they both handle that danger of the travel? So in Ezra chapter 8, we hear what Ezra did to address that issue. He says in chapter 8, verse uh, 21, he says, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Then, uh, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. So that sounds like just the kind of uh, handling of the situation that we would expect from uh, the man that God has chosen to use, right? He is a man of prayer, a man of faith, and he demonstrates his faith by trusting in God to protect him. And he does this especially so that it will be a witness to the king and no doubt to other people also that he had told God protects the people that he is pleased with. Now, just a few years later, Nehemiah is in pretty much the same situation. He is also leading a group of people on the same journey. So what does the Bible say then in Nehemiah chapter 2? Nehemiah says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So Nehemiah travels under the protection of the king's soldiers. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't sound nearly as spiritual as Ezra's way of doing it, right? Um, but, but look what the Bible says. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. That's the same, same phrase that's used to describe Ezra. Both of these guys, in virtually the same situation, handled it differently, and both were enjoying the gracious hand of God in that situation. So what do we learn from that? Well, before I suggest an answer, I want to look at a couple more situations that come up in these books and see uh, how Ezra and Nehemiah uh, faced these things. The first one is their assessment of the situation of the people in Jerusalem and the task that each one took on to help the people. 
So Ezra, as we have seen, was devoted to the teaching of the Bible. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, his primary work was to teach the Bible and appoint a team to help him to teach the Bible. And so his assessment of the situation was, what the people really need is spiritual instruction. What they really need is teaching about how to know God and how to properly worship Him. Nehemiah, on the other hand, assessed the situation differently. He saw the ruined city walls as an essential issue that needed to be dealt with. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he met with the leaders of uh, the Israelites that were there, and here's what he said to them in Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So Nehemiah's first priority was the physical well-being and security of the city. He saw that they needed to get their hands dirty, doing some manual labor to improve the standard of living of the city, to bring people up from the precarious poverty and insecurity of being a defenseless people. They needed structure. They needed a physical structure. Now, which of those two approaches to the needs of God's people was the correct one? Was Ezra doing it God's way? Or was Nehemiah doing it God's way? Or another way of asking the question is whether God is concerned with our physical situation or is he only concerned with the spiritual? As we seek to expand God's kingdom into the world, should we be concerned with the spiritual needs of the people, teaching them about the revelation of God and the Bible? Or should we be concerned about the physical needs of people? Well, clearly God is concerned about our whole lives. God cares that we know the Bible and that we know him and how to properly worship him. But God also cares about our physical lives. And he raises up people and uses them to do his will in both of those areas. And of course, these are just two examples of the kinds of work that God calls and enables his people to do on his behalf. Uh, God is concerned with human flourishing. He wants us to have life to the full. And healthy religious life is essential to having life to the full. But it is not all there is to life. God is concerned with our whole lives. Both Ezra's teaching of the word of God and Nehemiah's building of the wall. And God used each of these guys to do the work that fit their personality, their gifts, their personal desires, and their training and their backgrounds. 
God does not use each and every one of his servants to do all the same kinds of work. God has made us different from one another on purpose. God wanted us to be different from one another. And he wants to use Ezra and people like him to do one kind of work. And he wants to use Nehemiah and people like him to do another kind of work. So what kind of work might God be calling you to do for him? What kind of work might God be calling you to do for him? What kind of work might God be calling you to do for him? Now let's look at another similar situation that both Ezra and Nehemiah confronted. And this was the issue of Jews marrying non-Jews. Now Pastor Mike talked about this a fair bit last week, but I know that some of you weren't here last week. And, uh, and it, it's such a uh, kind of a... This story uh, clashes against our modern sensibilities in such a way that it's worth talking about again, even if you were here last week, to... Uh, to give a little explanation of what the issue was here. Um, so, so let's look at what Ezra and Nehemiah had to say about this situation. First, Ezra chapter 9, um, starting with verse 3. Ezra has just been informed that many of the Jews have been marrying people from among the other nations who live around. And he says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me. And because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then a few verses uh, further down, uh, Ezra is pouring his heart out to God about this issue, and he says, uh, But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your sons, uh, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, and do not take their daughters for your sons. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with peoples who commit such detestable practices? So let's talk a little bit about why this is such a big deal. <laughs> is it a big deal because Ezra's a racist? Or, or is God a racist? Does God want the or does God not want the pure Jewish blood to be mixed with foreigners? Is that what the, the problem is here? No, of course not. 
The Bible is very clear in many places that racism is an evil sin, not the plan of God. So, for instance, in the book of Galatians, where it's discussing the way that people, different kinds of people relate to the God of the Bible, it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So all of those things, your race, your, your gender, your economic status, all of that is irrelevant in how we relate to God. And we see right here in these verses that we just read from Ezra that the issue really is the detestable practices of the Canaanites, not their skin color or their genetic makeup that's an issue. And, of course, we see that in many of the stories of the Old Testament. Um, so, for instance, in the very first battle when Joshua conquered the Promised Land, the first one, the Battle of Jericho, they first come into Canaan, and, um, and they are bringing God's judgment on these wicked people who have um, filled the land with this corruption, but they make an exception right in the first battle. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, had chosen to throw in her lot with the Israelites and with the people of God. So here's how she put it when she was talking to the Jewish spies that she was helping. She said, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And so all the people of Jericho had heard those same things about God, but Rahab acted and put her faith in God, and she was accepted into the people of God. Her ethnicity as a Canaanite was not a problem. Her background as a prostitute was not a problem. She had put her faith in God, and she was accepted by God. And we see uh, later in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, where it's giving the genealogy of Jesus and who all of his ancestors were, that Rahab herself uh, turned out to have married a, a, a Jewish guy, by the way, one of the more Alaskan Jewish guys, his name was Salmon, um, but she, <laughs> she married him, and, she, and, and they were uh, ancestors of Jesus himself. And of course, um, we also see on that list of Jesus' ancestors, Ruth the Moabite, who was another foreigner who was accepted by God when she put her faith in him and also became one of the ancestors of Jesus. And we see lots of other people in, in stories that are less prominent than maybe Rahab and, and Ruth, but there's a lot of other foreigners among the people of God that are told of in the Old Testament. For instance, there's a list of all of David's mighty men. They're his, uh, his trusted bodyguard, his best soldiers, his most trusted uh, 
men, and, uh, and it gives their backgrounds of all these guys. And many of them are uh, uh, such as Zelek the Ammonite and Uriah the Hittite. Those guys are Canaanites, and yet they are part of the people of God. They are included and even are some of the most trusted men of the king. So clearly, we're going back to Ezra, the concern that God has with these marriages is not the ethnicity of the, uh, the, the, the people that they're marrying. Um, Nehemiah actually gives us a pretty good explanation of what the issue was in Nehemiah chapter 13. So if we look over there, it's right toward the end of Nehemiah, it gives us this story in verse uh, 26, where it says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? So it wasn't the ethnicity of Solomon's wives that was the problem. It was their religion, right? If you go back and read Solomon's story, um, after he built the great temple in Jerusalem to, to the one true God, he also built many other temples around Jerusalem for the gods of these other women so that they could worship the gods of their homelands even while they're living now in Israel. And Solomon himself went with them and also worshiped their gods in their temples. And because he was the king, he was setting the example, and so the whole nation started worshiping other gods, and they became polytheistic, believing that there are many gods. Yeah, yeah, this is our god, our, this is our main one, but there's all these other gods too, and it's good to have them all on your side if you can. And that way of thinking was what had led to the exile in the first place. That's why God had punished them and sent them into exile, and now here they are, marrying foreign wives, being led astray again. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah get very upset about it, because they see the seeds of sin again through these, these mixed marriages. So, um, so how did they respond how did Ezra and Nehemiah respond when they see this problem? Well, we already read uh, Ezra. Uh, it says he, he tore his tunic and cloak. He pulled hair from his head and beard and sat down appalled. And Nehemiah's reaction was similar in some ways, but actually quite a bit different. In Nehemiah, we read it in uh, 1323. He says... 
Moreover, in those days I saw the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. That's pretty extreme. So, but both Ezra and Nehemiah pulled out hair when they heard about what was going on here. But Ezra pulled out his own hair in mourning. Nehemiah went and found those guys and pulled their hair out. It's, it's, it's a different way of doing it. But here's the question. Which one of these guys was being used by God to address the problem of these sinful marriages? I would say that they both responded in a pretty extreme way. They believed that the sin of some of the people of God was going to affect the people of God as a whole, and they took drastic steps to address it. In fact, they almost certainly uh, worked together on this issue. Even though their initial reaction was different, they both felt that it needed to be dealt with, and they were both in Jerusalem at this time, and they both worked together as the two most prominent uh, leaders of the people, and they helped to deal with this together, even though their initial responses were a bit different. But here's where I want to come back now to the point we made earlier about whether or not to ask the king to send soldiers to protect the caravan on the way to Jerusalem. See, these two men of God took different paths in their service to God. Even when confronting nearly identical situations or the very same situation, they handled things very differently from one another. Why was that? Well, it was because they were different people who had different personalities and different giftings and backgrounds and jobs, and I'm, I'm sure many other things about them that were different too. But God chose both of these guys, and God used both of them. And they didn't follow God's calling in their lives in the same way, even when they faced the same situations, but they were both people of God. So what about you? What does God want to use you to do? Does he want you to teach the Bible like Ezra? Which doesn't necessarily mean that you need to become a pastor or a seminary professor or something. It could be just as simple as telling your friends what you know about God or leading a journey group or teaching Sunday school. Does God want you to, be, uh, to do your work on a more physical well-being type project like Nehemiah that promotes the welfare of his people? Could be something like uh, volunteering to serve meals down at the Hope Center or cleaning the floors at Beacon Hill or working with Habitat for Humanity to build houses for the poor. See, God does not call all of us to do the same work in the same way. God has made us different on purpose. He has gifted us differently. 
And God wants to use you. He has given you the background that you have, the skills that you have, the personality that you have, the passions and desires that you have, which are different from mine, which are different from Pastor Mike's, which are different from the people sitting next to you. God shaped you the way you are for a purpose. See, here's what the Bible says about this in in the book of Romans. It says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. See, we are, we're not going to get into exactly what each one of these things are today, but, um, but what I want you to notice, first of all, is that only probably two of these things are really the Ezra-type preaching and teaching kind of uh, work, right? And some of the rest are Nehemiah-type gifts, like maybe leading and giving, but, but others don't seem to fit either one of those two examples, Uh, They are gifts that God has given to other people, right? But the application, the main idea here should be pretty clear, and that is whatever it is that God has gifted you to do, whatever he has shaped you for, you need to do it. The body of Christ will be deficient unless you, as part of the body, are doing your part. So this same uh, discussion comes up in another part of the Bible in 1 Corinthians, where it's written by the same author as the Romans passage we just read, and he uses a lot of the same uh, metaphor to describe God's people as a body with different parts. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So people like Ezra need people like Nehemiah. And both of them need people like Shalom, son of Halohesh, who's mentioned in Nehemiah 3.12 as having rebuilt a section of the wall of Jerusalem with the help of his daughters. And they need people like these guys mentioned in Ezra 8.16. And this is quite an interesting list of names here in Ezra 8.16. You've got to hear this. Um, Eleazar, that's fine. Ariel, not the little mermaid, different person named Ariel. Um, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, another guy named Elnathan, and then a guy named Nathan with no L at the beginning. Then Zechariah, Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joyarib, and then a third Elnathan, who were men of learning. And all of those guys, all the Elnathans and Nathans and everybody, they were chosen by Ezra uh, back in, you can read their story back in Ezra chapter 8, about they were chosen by him to go out and recruit more people to come with them to Jerusalem from, the, uh, from among the people in Babylon there. So, here's the thing. They, those guys were needed too. They had a role to play too. So, people like me, we need people like you. And people like you need the people that are sitting around you. See, none of us can say, because I'm not a hand... I don't belong to the body. In other words, you can't say, I don't have the right background. I don't have the right training. I don't have the right personality or gifting. God doesn't have a purpose for me to move his kingdom forward in the world. No, God has made you just the way you are to do his will in your own way. And none of us can say, I'm good by myself. I don't need anybody else. No, God has made you to work together with others to accomplish his purposes. So, where does God want you to be working for his purposes? Is it in one of the ministries of Clearwater Church? Is it in another ministry that's here in Anchorage somewhere? Is it up at Victory Bible Camp like Leanne, who has uh, followed this kind of teaching uh, right to where she needs to be? Or is it not through a formal ministry, but through your own efforts to use your gifts in the lives of others just in relationships and in, in interactions with people. Whatever it is, you can be sure that God has a plan for you. And He has a purpose for you in His kingdom. And He wants to use you. And figuring out where that is, 
um, is one of the most important things that we do in our lives. Assess the situation like Nehemiah and Ezra did. There's many needs among the people of God, many places where God needs to be at work through His people. Ezra saw one need, and he went and met it. Nehemiah looked at the situation and saw a different need. He went and met that need. We need to do the same. We need to figure out what it is that God is calling us to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the privilege of being your servants. We thank you that you have made us the way that we are so that we can be used by you in our own special ways. And we pray that you would guide us to know your will for our lives. Help us to Be there for others and to not be ashamed to rely on others. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.